How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. Oh, and I'm Jake. And you're seeing the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 176. Yes, yes. You saved yourself. I was woefully underprepared there. We're what, to figure right out in. what episode it is? No, no, no. Well, like, we just, you're like, how's it going, guys? I'm like, whoa. Slow down, Zeke. Oh, I was just engaging <laughs> my light speed. Oh, fair enough. As he would in, in the uh, in the big canon that is the the Star Wars. Have you heard of this film, Zeke? Uh, I might have heard a little bit of uh, it. Well, we're covering it today, as well as, I guess, a million other sequels, prequels, spin-offs, shows, books, games. No, we're not doing all those. Imagine if we did. Fan films on YouTube. The, re- the remake of the Obi-Wan Darth Vader fight. <laughs> Gotta have you say, seen that? I, have, I have. It's very good. Yes. But it's uh, it's almost a little too flashy, you know what I mean? Yeah. A little bit. It almost reminds yeah. me of like a Mortal Kombat yeah. cinematic scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just with Obi-Wan and Darth Vader. How are you, Jake? I'm good. It's been a good week for me, film-wise. That's really good to hear. I know. I I feel like we're in a constant state of yin and yang. We are, which is, I think, is quite healthy, actually. Yes, I think it is very healthy. We both watched 30 films this week. Well, before... I mean, those can be great, but... We jump into uh, all the stuff you've covered. Have you got Mm. a film trivia fact for me? I do, Zeke. Of course I do. I'm always coming prepared. I want to talk about director George Lucas. It's kind of like, you know, when when they're Bong Joon-ho, they call him Director Bong. We should we should translate that to English with director George. Mm. Although that's probably not. You like there's plenty of directors named George. Yes. George Roy Hill, for example. Yes. Oh. He is a director of note. I'm getting really tangential here. <laughs> um, I wonder about how director George Lucas waged the normal writer director fee and instead asked for a quote unquote mere one hundred seventy five thousand dollars plus forty percent of the merchandising rice for Star Wars. Of course, at this point, just called Star Wars. So the merchandising rights expands to anything and everything Star Wars. And at this point in the 70s, and this is coming off particularly the failure of Dr. Doolittle, the 1967 film, which I think was actually nominated for Best Picture that year, which is interesting. Mm. Um, The studio, because of that failure, didn't really see much value in the merchandising, so they allowed it. And of course, famously, the Star Wars merchandising rights have made Lucas... Many, 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 many millions of dollars. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, he actually ended up using a lot of that money to fund future Star Wars films, including episodes five and six independently, um, which I think a lot of people forget about, is that really this is the only Star Wars film in the whole thing that's like truly studio. Oh, until Disney bite, I guess. Mm. Obviously, Fox own a lot of it. Um, but this move is probably one of the biggest moves in terms of Studios uh, dealing with merchandising, merchandising rights. Um, this was very famously a dud on their end. Now they're very protective of their rights, but that's not so much a fact about the film itself. Zeke, is your fact more about the film itself? Yes, my uh, my fact actually ties back to uh, the film's antagonist, Darth Vader. Oh, I've heard of him. Um, you might have heard of him. <laughs> uh, originally, George Lucas wanted the voice of Darth Vader to be by Orson Welles, who Ooh. we've talked a little bit about on our Citizen Kane episode, our Third Man yeah. mentions. Uh, we still got to watch the Third Man on the yes. show. Crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. Um, and even... Uh, Mank. Yeah. Uh, we talked about it on Mank. True. So, um... Who played him in Mank? 
Thomas something, was it? Yeah, he played him really good, though. Yeah, oh, it was fantastic. I can totally see that with his voice. He's got a... It's more of like a radio presenter voice, but... Yeah, well, the reason he opted against it was because he thought the voice would be too recognisable, and that's um, probably fair. Cause... No more recognisable than uh, the, the current voice they got, <laughs> I guess, at the time. Yeah, yeah. well, James, James L. Jones, Jones probably yeah. wouldn't have been so recognised. It is quite funny when you see... At the time, yeah. James L. Jones as a person. Like, because when you become famous, I reckon, off the your disembodied voice, mm. when you finally see the, bo- the voice embodied, it can sometimes be a bit jarring. Sure. And it's like, so if you've seen Field of Dreams and you see what James L. Jones looks like person-wise, right. he's not a six-foot, you know, eight... <laughs> towering inferno though he's this kind of short plumpy african-american man yeah exactly <laughs> orson Welles was played by none other than tom burke i got the thomas part right yeah in mank there you go but zeke yes i have to ask you this might be a super irrelevant question but the poster behind you 1100 films you must watch before you die yes is star wars on that yes. list yes it is <laughs> should it should it be on yes. that list yes okay Get through that one quick. <laughs> now, uh, who should start, Zeke, and who? Uh, what we've been watching in the last week? Well, I'm going to just disappoint, sadly, and uh, disappoint us. Say that I have not uh, caught any uh, new films in the last week. I've only oh, managed dear. to catch relevant films to the film of the week that we're talking about. Yeah. I did catch. Um, a- once again, still sits in the relevancy realm. Of course. Started watching a couple of shows. Uh, always, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I've been... That's right. Watching. So, you've, so you've never seen this before? No. No, oh, wow. It's sort of a... Obviously, building on finishing up Mythic Quest on Apple TV. Yeah. Um, and enjoying that. Sort of backtracked um, and started watching this show. It's funny. It is quite funny. It's yeah. definitely... I, I know it was one of those films that was... Uh, one of these shows that was created because, you know, this group of actors, this Rob McKelleny, uh, Charlie Day, um, and and that whole collective, they'd made it solely based off, like, there were actors that couldn't get work, I'm pretty sure, and oh, okay. elected to make a sort of a ramshack of a show, and, and comedy show of a bunch of people owning a bar and often confronting funny, crazy scenarios. It's definitely not a PG comedy. It's considering oh, okay. a time that started came out in two thousand five, two thousand six. It's yep. it's very risque and very full on and quite entertaining for that reason. Oh, very good. The only other show I caught was the debuting Obi Wan. Mm, I've actually watched these two episodes as well. Oh, cool! So Look at just, me go. Let's just do you want to talk about that now? I guess. Um. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it doesn't really have any ramifications on the film of the week, other than being set between. Yeah. Prior. Well, that 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 kind of that's kind of my jumping point right there is because right off the bat, you click it on Disney plus to watch the show. And like, I was sort of like, not really that interested. I was, you know, if the trailers played, I would typically like watch them for a minute and scroll past. I wasn't hugely interested, but then the more I thought about it, I was like, I kind of do want to see you McGregor back in the role. I kind of want to see this. And when you click on Disney plus, the recap is literally just episodes one, two and three. Yeah. And it plays like a five minute montage. And it's like, it was that weird thing for me of, Oh god, I, f- I forgot how much the fans initially s- kind of segregated the original and prequel trilogies because the the quality difference <laughs> of yeah. like everyone just like oh the prequels suck they never existed it almost feels so separated from the original trilogy I can buy that that yeah so that when I started watching it I was like oh this 
this feels more like a like a Logan-esque sequel, and I say that having not really seen any of the other X-Men films other than Logan, but in terms of the, the loner sort of character arc that Obi-Wan's going through, it feels more like a sequel to the prequels than like a setup for A New Hope. Yeah, I mean, it. as someone who watched, I actually watched, revisited episode three during the week, mm. um, just in preparation for this, and then watched these first two episodes. Once again, I actually wasn't, I admit, I was not super like, yeah, I can't wait for the show to come sure, out. Sure, yeah. I think I've lost a lot of my steam and hype for these big franchises having uh, all of these nuanced shows. And yeah. I've said it, mostly critiquing the MCU, but... My Star Wars steam has kind of been lost too. Like, I watched all of Book of Boba Fett, but obviously haven't mentioned it too much on the show because I really don't think it's worth... If you Even if you're a massive Star Wars fan, it's not essential viewing, I think. Sure, yeah. Um, and a lot of these feel like they're becoming less and less essential viewing. Mm. Um, That's a like, really good way to put it, actually. Um, yeah. And it's like you said, like, you watch that uh, opening scroll, and I mm. found it kind of funny because... They're obviously, they're really trying to canonically segregate, like you're talking about just the prequels and the originals, Yeah. but even taking the animated shows out of... uh, Like Clone Wars and Rebels and... And and I have to say, both of these, in the first episode alone, it's baffling that they don't even mention Rebels and and the Clone Wars show, because they're talking about it without talking about it, like... I'm going to just straight out say it. The mm. the Grand Inquisitor is like the villain for the first season of Rebels. Oh, okay. And um, they do something in the second episode, which completely... I think they're going to fix it later in this season. Okay. But it is kind of a bit of a head-scratcher because people that watch these shows tend to watch those shows too. Sure. Yeah. So... Especially, it's, like you said, like the, the, it feels like the relevancy of these shows or, or the, the, the feeling of, of needing to watch it is getting less and less and less. So you feel like the target audience is becoming more and more specific yeah. to gigantic Star Wars fans. And it's like, half these characters I don't know, they feel new to me, but I guess they're in these other shows as well. Well, that those... Yeah, I'm the Grand Inquisitor character mm. is, um, and I'm pretty sure not the third sister, but the other one he's in... Uh, one of them but then it's also okay. there's also video game canonicness now too right okay with that Jedi Fallen Order that's canon too oh okay so they you, just uh, showed a trailer for the new one I think yeah and that's uh, like that. I think it's one of the few franchises now that has like literally multimodal platform yeah canon oh, stuff God. which is how oh, Disney-esque <laughs> yeah it's, in, it's intense so it's I mean look, let's in isolation what did you think of the first two episodes um well, I think a lot of it in theory I actually liked. Like, again, I like the Obi-Wan sort of like the, the sad loner. He sort of almost renounced the Jedi. Not quite to the extent that Luke did in Episode Eight. I guess not to piss too many people off <laughs> to echo that. But but there is this sort of defeated mm. hunch. Or I think it's a little different to Episode Eight Because okay. with Mark Hamill's, it almost... It doesn't feel... What happens there's a literal life and death situation. Like they have no power in their universe. And the only way Jedi survive was almost to repress their force abilities right. and repress their, the ideologies. And I think that there, there's a little bit of severity difference. Whereas if you look at, you know, when Ray finds Luke in episode eight, he's almost doing it out of cynicism. Yeah. Sure. Anything. 
Um, and I think, well, I think the real key, because there's sort of a cynicism to to both of these characters, if we're talking about Luke in Episode Eight and then Obi-Wan in this show, I mean, the key difference is Obi-Wan feels like there there is nothing, there is nothing to say, there is nothing to do. You know, the Jedi are dead, while with Luke, I mean, there is an urgency, you know, there is a threat to the galaxy, and I think that was sort of what, you know, pissed a lot of people off, is that... Luke was like, well, I don't care. Mm. And I don't think Obi-Wan's, like, in the state of he doesn't care. Like, he sees Benny Safdie, which without... What a... That was a surprise. I was like, oh, my God, that's Benny Safdie. I wonder who the Jedi is in this uh, little hut. <laughs> it's probably the one actor I recognize immediately. Catches you off guard, though, doesn't it? I know. Oh, it was brilliant. But um, I wish he had more to do. I guess he doesn't. <laughs> Based on what happens in these two episodes. But I think... <sighs> it's kind of why I bring up Logan again because like there is that that cynicism of there of like well this thing that I was a part of is done and there's sort of no reason to to carry this heroism with me and we see it with the sort of that the the co-worker that's being abused he's given half the credits instead of the full amount Obi-Wan he doesn't do anything he doesn't care this isn't his business that's probably going to pay off in like episode 6 yeah because at the end of the day as much as I say this feels like more of a sequel to the prequel trilogy than it's something that's meant to follow up to A New Hope. But I'm constantly thinking about A New Hope when I'm watching this, and I'm constantly thinking about how things are going to tie together. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to spoil too much, but there's a big reveal at the end of episode two when I was like, oh, I guess that is a reveal. I guess Obi-Wan wouldn't know this at this point in time. Like, and you have little moments like that, and there's little character interaction. I don't know if it's a spoiler or not, mm. who sort of, I guess, the, the, the companion character is. I don't know if that's in the trailers or or whatnot. But um, for like for like episode two of Obi Wan, when he rescues a certain person, yes, is that a spoiler that that person's in the show? Um, I don't think so. I haven't watched any of the trailers. To be yeah, I, I didn't either. Can we? I mean, can we just base off the assumptions? It's it's Star Wars. Like, yes, if yeah, if you're really listening matter? to this, yeah, yeah. Or so so young Princess Leia's in yeah. this as well as young Luke. I know for a fact young Luke. What's with Luke, the biggest so. question is what's with Disney employing in their Star Wars comedians to play characters? I know Kamal the- <laughs> Nanjiani. <laughs> that was so strange. A yeah. comedian fake Jedi impersonator. Yeah, I did like the idea behind the, the fake Jedi. That's that's clever. But I yeah. think the thing that I was like, oh, this is kind of cool, is not only the reveal at the end of episode two, it's like, oh, I guess Obi-Wan wouldn't know that at this stage. That's kind of cool that we're going to have this arc. But the other one is like, him and Princess, they don't have scenes together in the original trilogy. When you watch yeah. and you hope, you're like, they don't interact. So it's like, that's kind of a cool, like, not a retcon because I feel like they're doing it in just enough well, of a way. The reason it's sense. not a retcon is because when she asked for his help, and then Luke in Episode Four was like, "I'm with Ben Kenobi." I noticed that too. She recognizes Ben's name, so she, she does know who Ben Kenobi is. Yeah, just because they never interact in a new home in the movie. Yeah, it's, it's obviously, and we'll dive into the intricacies of that in the second half of the show. But it's 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 all intentional. See, I think that's quite nifty i actually kind of like a lot of that and it, it feels like so far it's being done with a certain amount of restraint like obviously everyone having the the little toy spaceship like it's like it's innocent enough like it's not like too jarring or doesn't make sense and it reminds me of when i watch better call soul i'm looking out for the 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 connections and the recontextualizations of how it affects Breaking Bad. I mean, and I'm getting the same vibe watching Obi-Wan. The, the reality it's funny. of the situation is he was enlisted to watch over this kid grow up. Yeah. 
So to see little things like him finding, getting the spaceship, and we then see Luke in a very early scene in New Hope playing yep. with that spaceship, and um, you know, it's all little things like in this one where he's observing, and we can see him d- mimicking the pod racing, yeah, uh, thing. You know, it's it's all mirror imagery stuff. It's a clever. It's I think the reason why people like the idea of this show is it's got they love exploring this era of time mm. in which. You know, so much happens. I mean, by the time we get to episode four, the rebellion has been formed and established. Yeah. And it's an existent party, which is why kind of Rogue One has that power to it. But even then, the rebellion had almost formed. It wasn't the birth of the rebellion. It was that final frontier to it. it. It's almost like it takes close... It takes place too close to A New Hope that it can't establish those wider... Well, births or connections what inherently that was was a, it was a bunch of unif- it was the unification of rebellion so right. it was not, it was not a bunch of other it was a bunch of smaller cells uniting under one yep. collective front that was the whole point sure. that's pretty yeah. much what the the whole point of the rebels show is, is mm. that birth of pockets of resistance unifying under one like banner mm. against you know the empire it's like it's- what they try to do with the trial of chicago 7 the yes. rad- they're all the same radical leftist yes. that was a real uh- <laughs> That's God, a real is... pull from Jake Diagrella yeah, today. <laughs> the show's just become references to other episodes. <laughs> um, to, to trials from many, many... Yeah, look, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the second... I, like I said, the, 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 the quote on paper death of a certain character I'm hoping is going to not just be something that they've decided to Disneyify and kill a character that they right. don't kill until way later on. Sure. Um, just to make way for uh, a th- the third sister character, which is is that um, an established character? From no, another? that's a that's okay. a new that's a new villain, a new character with um, hopefully not going to be with for some unrecognizable hatred for Obi Wan, which I'm sure will be explained at some point. I'm sure, it's like I my immediate thought was like because the the very opening scene is the I okay I got to say it. I gotta say it real quick because we're not here to talk about world news and and you know gun politics and all that, but considering what just happened very recently, to open your show on a bunch of stormtroopers trying to shoot children was a very interesting thing for Disney to do. I know that I know there's a release schedule; they can't really control those things. But yeah, my God, like not even a warning. Not, not, <laughs> not when not when your country has two hundred mass shootings a year. But no, um, no, exactly. It must be but, pretty. Must but, every second day. Yeah, the reason I bring that up, I was no, there was no other reason I wanted to bring it up than just I think the third sister has something to do with that scene. Like she was the young child in that opening yeah, one scene like it's something yeah yeah i'm sure it's and it, it's one of those things that it's just i hope that it's not this passive progressivism sneaking in that's affecting canon that's already been put out there i doubt it is to be honest what since they pretty much handed all the creative reins over to just dave filoni and john favreau right it's never been a problem so i doubt it's going to become one now i, mm. I can already tell i already know certain people of the show that are probably already blowing steam at that but oh, okay right. um it's a I'm little not, too early to call i'm not worried about that yeah i yeah. think that if anything if you've watched book of boba fett after reading like one article i was like oh yeah they could totally just do that where they brought a character back that was dead through a collection, and then if even if you dive back further on the Clone Wars, the way they brought Darth Maul back, mm. 
was so, like he gets chopped in half by Obi Wan Kenobi, and his rage is what keeps him alive. So <laughs> that's not a joke. It's like God it's of War. Well, no, it's well as like it's <laughs> like his rage. He's not sane, but it's it's like if that's allowed to happen, I'm I'm sure Mister Grand Inquisitor's not dead. But yeah, that's um, so funny. <laughs> it's an interesting. Oh, okay, I see, I see what the problem is now. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you're it's right. Just, it's it's Star Wars. Things. It's Star. Literally, that's the best. Way. It's Star Wars. People come back. Things happen. Any realm of science fiction, no one's really dead. Yeah. I mean, f- somehow Legi- Palpatine, <laughs> Palpatine survives. So. Exactly, it's the same franchise. You, I, like I could I, always feel the life getting drained out of Oscar Isaac when he delivered that line. Like <laughs> every just, take, he just sees life. Really, could tell he was struggling with it. He's like, "I'm gonna buy a new mansion with the money from this film. Just, just say the line." Yeah. Just say the line, Oscar. <laughs> but he was wishing he was suffering that same torture. He wasn't annihilation. Just oh my goodness! All creepies falling around him. Yeah, yeah. Look, so like, like I said, I like a lot of these ideas and concepts. I want to see where it goes. I mean, Ewan McGregor is probably still the best part of this. Like, yeah. Look, seen, I'm not gonna like, lie. I completely forgot how great he is. He's great. Yeah. Um, I wish he had more lines, but <laughs> as the titular character, well, I, I, it's really just the first episode before he like comes out of hiding but I'm not gonna lie look I, I didn't mind the first I prefer the second episode that first episode sure. didn't buy me into the show it takes a all. while I think to I move. thought the whole him working at a factory living like barely surviving was a bit cliche I thought he would thought it would be a bit more of a spiritual mm. um retreat episode that because like, I get out the hole, he has to blend in, he's in hiding and stuff, but I guess I just saw that and was like, you know, if you take that and you compare it to, I thought the Logan comparison was mm. really adept. I love the way Logan sets the scene more, more sure. so, I think. Because like, what are they actually up to well, during this time, yeah? we get introduced with an action sequence of Logan mm. still being in hiding, but he's dying, like, he has to protect his limo from being <laughs> I uh, That's jacked. such a great, like... Just motivation, like, to protect the limo it's from getting shot up. Great like. tone setter. Yeah. And then just, like, little... It's funny watching him drive around. He's got, like, woo girls in the back. And yeah, just, yeah. It's kind of hilarious. It's it's certainly more interesting than just, like, oh, Obi-Wan, he just... He works, works for credits. Yeah. He, more portions. Is that what... That's what he needs. Oh, that's, yeah. That's the wrong planet, I guess. I guess but, it could have been... Oh, no, it's another desert dustball planet. I know. Everything no, happens it, on desert dustball planet. It's more than one, apparently, yeah. I think, I, I think more importantly, I'm so sick of what's happening on Tatooine. This this little dirt ball in the middle of nowhere that's supposed to be the, the, the planet that is farthest from the centre of the universe seems to have a hell of a lot of stuff happening <laughs> on it. Uh, so we as the human race were like, the Earth is the centre of the universe. I don't blame Tatooine residents for thinking that yeah. at this point. But yeah, look, I, I will say that I did have some nitpicks here and there. Like, like I think we both agree the first episode sort of takes its time to get rolling in some ways or, or it wasn't I just, quite what I we just expected. think there's, like, if I compare it to the first episode, like Mandalorian, um, yeah, it just didn't hook me in as, yeah. as much. Um, like you said, like, it's great to see Benny Safdie in there, but... Um, I will, it, it did kind of go by quick, though. I will say yeah. that. Like, I was like, oh, it's over. Like, that was an hour. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I think you're right. The hook is it's sort of missing an hook. Yeah. 
And I think it, I, it might try and be like the Obi Wan and Leia relationship, you know, sort of father daughter as that could be something. But it's also only six episodes. Like we're already a third through the entire series. Oh really? Yeah, it's only. I think it's a mini series, six episodes, so it'll be done by the end of June. Well, um, they've got to compete with Giancarlo Esposito yeah, as a villain. They do. Oh, good luck with that. Yeah, but um, otherwise, uh, little nitpicks here and there, like the scene when Leia's like talking down to her like o- like older, taller cousin, where it's like that's meant to be a power shift scene. Where's like, oh, the little girl has more agency and and. But then, like, the camera doesn't do anything and the editing doesn't do anything yeah. and the extras don't react to it. And it's like, what a boring scene. That's meant to be like a... She looks really good for, like, a Leia. I, well, oh, oh, right. I a thought you were going to say she looked really young for 10. <laughs> she does. Yeah. But she also... Great, like, Leia-looking... Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think she does a good job. The attitude and everything. Yeah. Like, that all clicks with who Leia is. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's better than young Han. Don't get me started. God. Well, if I want to segue this into another thing that I saw in this past week. Sure. Because it, it sort of ties into this theory that I came up with, Zeke. Okay. This theory about sort of anticipated anticipated sequels, if you will. The reason we're semi-excited for Obi-Wan is because it's obviously based on something from that we've seen earlier that we associate, but there's usually been one thing in between them that sort of soured the taste. Yes. So as much as we were excited for The Force Awakens because we love Star Wars but were soured by the prequels. So we were excited for the new thing. And then it almost happens again in the same franchise. We're excited for Obi-Wan because between that and the prequel trilogy was the sequel trilogy, which again, soured our taste. So we get excited again for the old thing to be redone. Yes. And I think there's a lot of franchises that kind of abide by this rule in terms of people excited. I think Ghostbusters had that earlier this year. Like, oh, Mm. we love Ghostbusters... 2016 kind of soured it, but now they're going back again. We're going to enjoy it. I mean, there's a lot of franchises like that. Mm. The outlier in this case is Top Gun, because I've seen Top Gun Maverick, and I saw it twice, actually. Wow. I saw it twice. Um, It's very good. It's very, very good. Um, The reason I say it's an outlier is because there is no, like, Top Gun prequel trilogy. (laughs) There is no, like, late 90s sequels directed. I have heard it is better than the original. I, uh, I'll i say that I really couldn't do it to, to give it, like, a higher grade than you... Re- I gave him the same grade on Letterboxd. I, like, couldn't do it. But I also would not argue with anyone who says they think it's a better film than the original. It's different, but also the same in a lot of ways. It's such, like, a cliched line. <laughs> I'll, I'll explain what I mean. So, we did Top Gun last week, of course. And one of the things we talked about is it feels very boys club-esque. It's very yes. loud and, and bombastic and like all the boys are having a fun time and the stakes only sort of come in very gradually towards the end. Comparatively, this Top Gun's a lot more somber, mature, uh, quieter, if you will. There's a lot of scenes with Tom Cruise is sort of by himself. Um, but that being said, the actual narrative structure, again, you can compare it to The Force Awakens just redoing A New Hope. Like you almost the opening scene. I don't want to spoil it for too many people. I I was had a I found a lot of people, a lot of friends being like, "Don't spoil it for me." Mm. I was like, "Really? You don't want me to spoil the Top Gun sequel?" But I get the characters resonate with people. People love Maverick and Goose and all of that, and so I won't spoil too many plot details because it seems like people actually generally like don't spoil this for me. But structurally, 
it is the force awakens to a new hope it's almost identical all the same scenes happen almost in the same order but the stories calls for something different it focuses more on like the aging relicness of tom cruise and his character of maverick yeah right even the ships where it's like you know all the f-14s we don't use those we use f-18s now but even those aren't technologically you know advanced enough to fight the enemy again there's no you know direct enemy we don't know who it is it's just their enemy um and now you've got maverick in more of a teacher role with these other students and i i don't want to say too many story details i will say miles teller is excellent in his role which i don't know if that's a spoiler or not what mm. his role is in the film um it's, but uh, but it, miles teller mm. and glenn powell mm. mistaken yeah, no, it's a great castle around legacy actors and the new castle like, but um, I actually caught, sort of had a similar issue with the Obi Wan thing, and that some of like the direction and editing beats were a little awkward. The dialogue is so like cheesy as all hell, like eighties cheese to the max. But but otherwise, it takes itself very seriously, and the action, you know, choreography and cinematography with the flying is just it's it's freaking unbelievable, man. It yeah. is like insane. The stuff that they are yeah. doing in this film. And, like, the original Top Gun feels like they've sort of glued and taped a lot of the footage together to put together this, you know, feed of action filmmaking. This feels a lot more, like, clean and, and like, they had a lot more time to, to really nail these action scenes and get the choreography right. And the geography as, as well. You, know, you spend the whole movie building towards an objective. So by the time you get there, not only is it really intense, but it's like you know exactly the ge- the geography of where they're meant to fly, what they're meant to do. Yeah. And it just makes everything so much more tense and intricate because you're into it. You're like, you know exactly what needs to be done. And that's something the original Top Gun doesn't necessarily have. I still think it's a feat of tension building when you get to that final dogfight. But at the end of the day, it's a dogfight. There's no, like, geographical awareness of, like, where the, the planes are, what the jets are. And so, in a lot of ways, I think this film really ups the ante in terms of its action cinematography and... Mm. It's yeah, it's wonderful. It's it's really good. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Have you caught anything else in the week? Jeff? The only other film I saw, which I'm surprised it was still in theaters. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie. The unbearable weight of massive talent. Oh, <laughs> and uh, what were your thoughts? Um, it's fine. It's fun. I think it's it advertises itself as like the Nick Cage film. Look, it's Nick Cage, and he's doing all these Nick Cage performances. Mm. When you actually watch the film, it just feels like a very blank simple template like i reckon you would get a lot of use out of this film like teaching free act structure and like the hero's journey like this Mm. is such and we can talk about star wars being such a great template for that too but i mean this film really fits the bill in that it could have been any actor and it could have been any sort of i want to say b-list but like any actor that could fit that mold you know the john malkovich sort of mold of like hey i know of john malkovich so i'm gonna go watch this film because it's about john malkovich um, and then Nick Cage just so happened to be the actor who said yes to the yeah. script. So they, they changed a couple of lines and made it fit a bit more. You know, there's no adaptation jokes about Nick Cage and he's like imaginary twin. It's like, there's literally a film with Nick Cage and an imaginary twin and they don't make the joke. It's like really yeah. strange. But again, just like as a clean template of, you know, here's a really nice look at free act structure hero's journey through the face of Nick Cage and this friendship he makes with, um, uh, Oh my god, how am I forgetting his name? Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal, thank you. Um, I was going to say, <laughs> for some reason, I had the star Pablo. Of, the had, star of the bubble. Ex- yeah, of the bubble, yeah. I was going to say Pablo Escobar. I was like, that's not it. Yeah. <laughs> he is in Narcos, but he doesn't play Pablo Escobar. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. Um, 
but yeah, I think I think the film is sort of clever as well with the genre of like it starts as a character piece and it turns into a bromance between those two, and it sort of is self-referential in the fact that it just turns into a big action blockbuster film. Mm. Um, but again, I think it, it's just it's clever enough and interesting enough that I had a fun time. Um, I didn't overly find it that funny. I mean, I saw it with Blake, friend of the show, and we sort of both laughed at different points in the movie. Yeah. So it was sort of pretty hit or miss, um, personally, in terms of comedy. But, yeah, I, I think as, like, a template to showcase, like, oh, here's, like, a very clean, free act structure hero's journey. Um, fun time with Nick Cage. And, yeah. Um, but otherwise, that's everything I've seen this week, Zeke. Beautiful. Well, mm. Jake, have you caught anything? Uh, sorry, have you got any... I've career- caught everything, Zeke. What are you talking about? Career <laughs> updates for the second half. Um, no, not really. I've, um, the Making the Raven doco I talked about last week, that's on IMDb and Letterboxd now, yeah. so go and log it. Give it all the good reviews. Yes, all the five stars. Exactly. Or negative reviews. Yeah. I can take extensive it. Extensive paragraphs. <laughs> extensive, personally offended paragraphs. When I saw... <laughs> I saw... So the second time I saw Top Gun was with friend of the show, Jack Bett, um, who I haven't seen in ages, but that's he was... A, that's he was a... Cinema Side Show alumni. I know. Deep cut right there. So I, Blue I, Velvet alumni. <laughs> exactly. But it's been so long since I've seen Jack. and I, it, we said, He said something that reminded me. I was like, oh, you got to check this out. And I showed him a, <laughs> the screenshot of the review. And he was it's like, his face was just priceless. He was like, he's so offended. <laughs> I took it so personally. Uh, anyway, that's beside the point. Get positive, negative reviews, whatever you want. Put it on the making of the Raven. That's right. When they make Spider-Man 48, we can get him back on the show. <laughs> exactly. Uh, good stuff. We miss him. We miss yes, Jack. Dearly missed. Well, it is time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke. As if we haven't already been talking about it. <laughs> 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 We're talking about Star Wars. <laughs> 20th Century Fox and George Lucas bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Stop that ship! I'd forgotten how much I hate space travel. Here they come. You're coming in too fast! The story of a boy, a girl, and a universe. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. It's a big, sprawling space saga of rebellion and romance. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I'll come with you to Alderaan. There's nothing for me here now. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. It's a spectacle, light years ahead of its time. It's an epic of heroes. And villains. And aliens from a thousand. 
thousand worlds. Go that way. You'll be malfunctioning within a day, you near-sighted scrap pile. Star Wars. A billion years in the making. The Force will be with you. Always. Princess Leia is captured and held hostage by the evil Imperial forces in the effort to take over the Galactic Empire. Venturism, Luke Skywalker and dashing Captain Han Solo team together with the lovable robot duo of C-3PO and R2-D2 to rescue the beautiful princess and restore peace and justice in the Empire. You didn't mention Chewie in your reading. Yeah. <laughs> Forever forgotten about. <laughs> I, have to, I have to acknowledge um, one Ricky friend of the show uh, who has given this movie two uh, and a half stars. What? Ricky? Yes. I hope he explains himself. Is it not a review? No, just two just, and a half. Oh, Ricky. Come on. How is that even possible? Uh, we've, we've obviously been talking about Star Wars mm. on the show already in a sort of wider scheme of like, you know, the Clone Wars Rebels animated shows and how there's a prequel trilogy and a sequel trilogy and a lot of that was disappointing and the Obi-Wan show and the connective tissue between all of that but as a film as Star Wars the 1977 seven Oscar winning uh, picture if you will um, this film's incredible yeah like how on God's green earth could you not like if you're not a fan of sci-fi or fantasy sure it might not be for you but it, this is such a technical, I, I don't even know masterpiece is the correct word, but like it's groundbreaking on almost every conceivable level in filmmaking. Yeah, I think that's probably why this film gets, you know, it's it's it, from every range, every facet, why this film led to this domino effect or this explosion of mm. different films and ips and we've now talked about obviously that's partially to do with its absorption from uh disney but even before disney took lucas arts it was mm. huge yeah. i mean it already had six films to its name multiple animation shows like the extended the, like the the books and the novels yeah, the and that, that was incredible so, so was there. it's it's not lost on really the the gravitas and size that this particular film had and you watch it and you're like yeah i could see why i mean it's it's a fascinating film unto itself mm. you walk away being like wow like I, this time especially i was watching it just really watching it with the lens of of how much does this offer me of the world in this first right. film right or is it just the world the, of star wars you mean yeah like yeah how how much do we learn about this world that we're in or is it really mm. just the story that we get caught up with or the, the, the feats of filmic technology that kind of blow us away. But then I remember watching this film at the age of 10 and being fascinated and that's, yeah. you know, that's 30 years removed from this film being made. Yeah. And even if I was watching a, a modified up-to-date cut, the last, what were the last two or three remasters were in like the early 90s so mm. it's it's still like quite removed you know from yeah, when yeah. i watched it so 
it really is just a try like a triumph of of cinema to be honest and mm. um a mixture of of sort of old legends with actors just before their big breaks mm. um it sort of is that perfect marriage of what almost Spielberg cinema was going to become in the 1980s versus the the blockbuster elements of before you know the yeah. early Spielberg so um you really can see their their close relationship just in the blueprint of this film's yeah. characterization well i think even i mean when we we're going for the trivia earlier there's like nearly 500 items of trivia on imd which is insane but i think one of them correct me if i'm wrong was that um when they when lucas showed a bunch of his friends the early cut and it was a rough early cut like a lot of the sound effects was just people going bang into the microphone and drawings of planets explode it was insane I mean, spielberg was the only one who actually liked the film everyone else was like this is going to be a disaster <laughs> so there's definitely a friendship there that's unmistakable and that they're helping yeah. each other out with these films um for me it's and you kind of touched on it because my takeaway watching this again and and we both watched well you you watched a couple of versions of this yeah um i solely focused on the the despecialized version which we talked a little about last week but for those who don't know it's called the i think it's harmy so h-a-r-m-e harmy's star wars despecialized edition there's a youtube video uh that's called that and then history and sources documentary extended version which goes into all the changes and, and sources they use to create the despecialized version, which is a high-quality recreation of the theatrical cut, which almost doesn't really exist officially. Um, so it's a great mm. video. Go check it out. And they talk about how all the different things they did to faithfully recreate and recompositing items and taking laser disc prints and compositing those into the original prints and all sorts of craziness. But I was trying to get, like you said, trying to get to the essence of what does this film achieve Yeah, f- removed from the extended universe of it. And I think you hit the nail on the head. You were still so intrigued by the world building and, yeah. the, and the characters and the, and the creatures and the vehicles and the, you know, the droids and just all of these fantastical elements that, you know, credit where credit's due with George Lucas. Like, yeah, he's not the greatest actor director in the world. You can't write dialogue very well. <laughs> but he, the imagination, the way he's able to reinforce that as a director into the visual element and get these artists to create these visual effects and these special effects and makeup and costumes and everything it's just completely baffling and and watching this as a kid your imagination just goes for the roof yeah it's unlimited i think it because it allows it does have that avenue for exploration like you can Mm. see a kid that would watch this film and then spend the next what is that, four years between first and the second I think film? three. Three years between the... Um, just creating worlds mm. upon... Uh, and the funniest thing, it's crazy that this film really only takes place between two planets and a, and a space station. Yeah. <laughs> you forget that very easily, especially with as someone who would watch Star Wars now and see them jumping planets like every... Every five seconds. <laughs> So, to be like, yeah, this really, the first third of this film, Mm. um, the first half of this film takes place on Tatooine, um, and the final, basically the the start of the third act and the end of the third act take place on Yavin 4, and then the rest is Death Star based, and that's truly crazy to think about, because, you know, this 
all-killing Star Destroyer weapon. We really only see it test its power once. And mm. it's quite interesting because it's, it's... I actually agree with your sentiments kind of perfectly. His imagination is the thing that is his strength yeah. and his way of almost visualizing science fiction. And he did have a a great head for that. And even the intro and what it liked was the depth and intricacies. It's almost something we've complimented, um, Denise Vellanu on with mm. his depth of worlds. And obviously in his instance, it's like redacting from the plot. If we're talking about, um, Blade Runner 20, you know, 2052. Mm. Um, but not, not so much of a problem. Sorry, 2049. Big one. Got the oh, wrong Three years ahead. You thought it was um, a Star Wars sequel. But we really liked it with Dune. <laughs> but Dune has a pretty simplistic plot too. It's not sure. There's a, there's a lot of like names to memorize and 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 things like that. But, the, but it's uh, the depth. Sure. Yeah. Um. Dense depth. Yeah, and I like this world of we see all of these countless tens and twenty different species of, mm. of aliens and stuff. And um, but when it comes to like the major acting roles, they, they, they cheated a little bit by making most of the major acting roles human based. Yeah. Cause yeah. the empire is this almost human supremacist party of, of predominant, <laughs> at least well, that's what we're alluded to no, in, it's the, in the definitely new, like new, a world war two. It's a of, Nazi yeah, yeah, yeah. regime for sure. It's uh, the whole point is, and obviously as we push into the expanded universe, that's not what it is. The Imperials are, a collection of rate like elite races, but sure. obviously but definitely we're like the iconography is like yeah, very and, recognizable. And that's obviously Germany. that's predominantly to do with the fact of budgetary reasons. And at the time they made a lot of aliens that were like immovable by nature. Like right, the Jawas yeah. are really just really short people in yeah, yeah. cows and, and using it's but it's clever. They're it's so what I love about it is like and obviously this this is crazy like they're shooting in the middle of the Tunisian desert mm. and in this immense terrible heat and they've got a you know a full grown man in this big metal sh- sheeted uniform <laughs> it's shocking that he's Anthony Daniels is alive <laughs> blows your mind I'm and then they've got they've got film. um I, I can't remember the one who plays R2D2 but they've got like a yeah. you know, a short person you know, a midget in this like uh in this in R2D2 tin, it's yeah. crazy yeah, and they would, I think they would leave him behind for lunch and... <laughs> Just crazy. Um, Kenny, Kenny Baker, I believe his name is. Let me zoom in on this real quick. Because I don't have my glasses on. Yeah, it is Baker. I thought it might have been Barker, but it's Kenny Baker, who has since passed away, unfortunately. Actually, a lot. you know what? A lot of the Star Wars cast has been passing away. Obviously, we lost Carrie Fisher around... The, I think I saw Rogue One in cinemas the day that she passed. Um, Peter Mayhew's obviously passed. Peter Cushing obviously passed. Um, so you know, there's a there's a lot of the cast that have gone now, but their work yeah. is in this film. And I think to your point, I still think about that even when watching the Obi Wan show, of like what makes him decide characters whether they're human or alien or because it always does feel like the easy way out is just making them more human <laughs> in this expansive world. Yeah, I I think. Oh, you're referring to the Obi-Wan stuff. Well, I'm saying, like, even when I watch that, which is a Star Wars release in 2022, and I'm still actively thinking about, hmm, why is this person human? Why didn't the 
make him an alien or yeah trip i think they've, the they've passed that bridge by then i think they even passed it as as early as the as empire strikes back with characters like yoda and, yeah yeah and even more intricate characters you know look on when they go to cloud city and bespin like mm. the ugnaughts and stuff like that. they're definitely there and then even more so by the time they get to um return of the jedi mm. when they're all basically just in java's palace for the first the first third of the film. That's true. Where it's a collection of, of alien races. So yeah. I don't think about that so much. I definitely think in this film it was mm. it was specifically targeted to be um just because of the acting side and right. I do And you're agree. right, the budget wise. I mean this film only costs eleven million dollars, which yeah. is when you think about the budgets they're doing for the Star Wars films nowadays, it's just monumental. I think what Yeah, that's definitely the film's greatest strengths is mm. is its pure imagination it's grounded scientific reality like everything gets explained like i almost forgot away the throwaway lines that they say when han's like explaining light speed yes, so i can't yes. jump like you forget that those lines are in there that yeah. are they're there is like that scientific anchoring to the world yeah and well there's some in world explanation of like oh aren't they just going to go into a rock and it's like no well there's actually a protocol to avoid that happening. Like, yeah. those, you're right, those lines are sort of peppered in there. And it's like little things, like the... Um, I think where the... One, one thing that where the strength sort of does dissipate a little bit is, is sometimes the obsession with the Empire and not talking so much about the older world, but obviously maybe that's because at the time Lucas didn't have as much of that fleshed out and maybe we've got to always keep our mind in when the film was released rather than all of this. Now we have all of this extended property. It's yeah. like, well, that, why doesn't Obi-Wan recognize R2-D2? But it's like, he actually probably does and just doesn't say anything. There's something, I thought about this because you got, obviously, the wonderful Alec Guinness who, I know, I know there's like reports and that of him like hating doing this, not hating doing this or this whole thing. But I mean, there's enough of a playfulness to his performance that when he says, I don't recall owning a droid before, like... There's enough playful in there that he could just be messing with Luke. Well, I actually think the question's answered in the th- three original films mm. because he lies about Anakin being Luke's father. That's like, true. And then yeah. says, oh, what I told you was true from a certain point of view. So by that <laughs> film, we're now saying, oh, well, he's kind of construed truth on that front. Why wouldn't he construe truth about R2-D2? Yeah, yeah. Because if he's willing to lie about this person's father. Do you really think he's got? And what he's like, you said. I don't recall owning a droid. He never owned R two. No, that was that was Anakin's droid. So, what he's saying is true from a certain point of view. <laughs> um, it's damn it, it Zeke. No, it's true. It's um, and I think that that it comes back to the other things like Leia saying like recognizing Ben Kenobi, yet they never interact in the film. So, how does that work? Well, there's clearly backstory there, and yeah. Um, yeah. Even, like, references to the Clone Wars at the time. I mean, let's be real. The, the Attack of the Clones didn't happen for another 25 years. Yeah. Film-wise. So, there are references there peppered in. Um, what we gather is clearly we've undergone... And we have to remember there is, what, at least 20 years between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. I think they've mm. now... They have outlined it as 20 or 21 years. I think Luke is 21. Okay. Um, in in yeah. a new hope. I remember my my wires got crossed because when I initially watched this would have been like two thousand four two thousand five when I started watching Star Wars and I infamously watched the prequels first. So my brother introduced me to Star Wars. I watched episodes 
one, two, and three. I actually watched the third one in theaters, and then I watched four, five, six. So by the time that I got to the fourth one, sorry, nineteen gosh, years. Nineteen years. Okay. So by the time that I got to the fourth one, in my head, I'm like, okay, well, all these movies take place ten years apart. So I spent a good chunk of my like life <laughs> thinking like Luke's meant to be ten in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> So, 19 years. So, when you think about that, like, generationally, when they get to a scene like when the introduction to the Moff, Grand Moff Tarkin, yeah. who probably, in my opinion, best performance in the whole film is okay. the Grand Moff Okay, yeah, that's Tarkin cool. I like that. Um, I think, obviously, it's very... I think he's very underrated. Um, I'm going to get his upper... Just get him his correct credit. Um, oh, you, Peter Cushing. Yes, Peter yeah. Cushing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he obviously has, like, he's obviously from a theatre background and he comes oh, across very with his clearly, clear yeah. enunciation and and sort of that. He almost has that Christopher Lee and mm. Ian McKellen deliverance to yeah. him. Yeah. Um, which works really well in the Lord of the Rings films, but obviously here it, it it's particular. I mean, it's that scene when he's interacting with Carrie Fisher where he's, like, mm. threatening to blow up Alderaan. It's his best scene. But that round table scene where. You know, all these Imperial officers, some of them are basically like, oh, yeah, the Jedi are this dead religion. Yeah. We are now the old power in this universe. And it, it's an interesting, because you're like, oh, well, that's like, they have to remember that's only nine, not, but 19 years, a long time. Like 19 mm. years when you've wiped out a religion by like, by the time that like the Obi-Wan show rolls around, that's only yeah. 10 years after. Right. And it, so, it's almost sort of the same, um, expectation of like oh the jedi are extinct they're all dead it's like yeah yeah so it's by that point yeah it's believable like i mean there's a whole generation of people who've grown up who have never seen a jedi or never they've only heard about them and they've only heard about them by people that are willing to silently rebel that mm. so um it's it is an interesting um thing to explore i think um it's definitely more philosophical in this film than it is uh, in other films. Well, I think that's what was so fascinating about it at the time when you sit and think about, okay, what is this Star Wars film? How does it showcase the Force? Is there is there any moment at all where they're doing like a Force pull or push? I don't think there is. Not in this film. It's almost it's... entirely spiritual. Yeah. And it's sort of the motivation for Obi-Wan. Psychological, too. Well, true. I, the reason I say spiritual is because you literally have Obi-Wan speaking to Luke from basically beyond the grave. And there's a bit more, of, as the films go along, there's more sort of explanation for what's actually happening. But yeah, he's we... basically a ghostly presence using the Force to, to tele- telepathically talk to Luke. If we talk about the, the binary nature of, of light and dark in this mm. particular universe, the uh, the physical pain-inflicting stuff is left to the dark side. Like, right. we only see... The only innate action oh, that's we true. see, the, we see Darth chokes. Vader's force choke. You're right. He, okay. And actually, if we jump into Empire Strikes Back, Darth Vader's the one who does a push, push, force push. Mm. It's not innately a they're aggressive stances. So the mindset is that what is considered purely light and good are those ethereal natures, like. Mm. The only time we ever see a force trick is is a mind trick where he's trying to yep. convince the the stormtrooper, but that's it. Or when he uses it to let off a sound oh, down the yeah, hall the, the to make storm to what avert was that noise? Temp- but it's not it's not combative, it's non-combative. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's the big difference. Um, that's interesting. This idea that there is both light and dark within the same sort of binding energy. 
Yeah, and you, you could uh, yeah. you could argue that, like, oh, okay, but then why did Jedi use those combatic combative tactics in the Clone Wars? Well, that was the whole problem. They were pushing too close to the dark. That was actually right, where okay. Anakin's turning point came because the Jedi started to take absolute power. They started. Mace Windu was someone who walked a very fine line between light and dark. He was mm. that weird neutrality side and the color purple. <laughs> yeah, well, they actually they actually said like there was. You know, there's a lot of expanded lore stuff. We're not going to inundate this conversation with that. Yeah. We're going to stick with this film. Don't, don't beat me with that. <laughs> let's let's talk about what this film does really well. Like the the fi- the final showdown. Oh my god! Yeah. Um, in which we get introduced to about twenty characters we've never seen before, <laughs> never heard of before, and are all nominally just red or gold. Well, I think I think a lot of them were established in what ended up being deleted scenes. In the, or some of them were establishing opening scenes, but that's sort of the genius you got. Um, Marcia Lucas, who was obviously George's wife at the time, who primarily edited. I think mean, there was a few editors in the film, but she was the primary editor. Um, pretty much both the idea to scrap a lot of these scenes where Luke is talking to some of these people before they're reintroduced at the end for us. It's an introduction because we haven't met them, as you said. Yeah. Um, but then, so not only to sort of clean up the pacing of the film, which I think is immaculate the pacing of this film it's perfectly paced yeah we can we can get back to that for the beginning but the other thing she does in that final um scene which is just phenomenal i never noticed this until i read about it was that all of the scenes at the rebel base where like leia and all the others are sort of listening in and keeping track of the actual battle they didn't shoot any of that to be mixed in with the battle that's all like leftover footage they had as a way to try and keep it interesting keep the footage going so when they're reacting to like the the people on the comms and everything that's all just like editing trickery they never shot it to to react to that so it's almost like just an editing trick to get things more exciting and it's great too yeah the the pacing of the reason why that ending works so well and i why i think this is the best of the originals Mm. um is i reckon it's the tightest film and it has the best pacing Um, and that final sequence is cut together the best, I reckon, mm. out of the three films in terms of ten- tension. Yeah. So, you know, you look back and you watch all three films, and, and I do think Empire is probably a close second on this, but you legitimately, there is a moment you legitimately buy into them failing. Right. Uh, like, and I think it's that moment when every time Luke seems to gain a reprieve or he has Obi-Wan's, you know, disembodied voice guarding mm. him there's always something else that gets added on and it's that raise of stakes like and it's really good like they keep the introductions to characters that were mentioned earlier in the script like he mentions Biggs in a throwaway line when he's talking to Owen and Brew. we meet Biggs and it's like oh okay that's really cool he's met this friend that he grew up with so that death carries that weight Um, but the rest of them yeah pretty much like we get an introduction to kind of the head commander guy who dies you know in the, the thing but it's like it's sort of like one of those, like, oh, it's your sergeant in battle sort of thing. And at this point, this is the other thing. We've never seen Luke pilot something before. No, no. We hear a lot about him being a good pilot, just like his father, but this is the first time we see it. And we see a little bit of his precision when he's shooting down the TIE fighters when they're getting away. But yep. I think it's just little things, like how tight the script is, like the fact that, oh, they went away from this all-planet destroying base. Why did they only have a couple of fighters following them? Oh, because there was a tracker. Right. Like, the way this, this script flows from one point to the other is seamless. And if we go to that fight, it just paces itself really well. That 
there's that moment when they, oh, they almost sink the bomb, but it's a narrow miss. And then when they finally get into the final trench run and they slowly get picked off because Darth Vader's coming in and piloting. And then there are like little nuances where you you already knew George Lucas in the following film knew he wanted Darth Vader to be Luke's father Mm. because... Who's a really good pilot for seemingly no reason? Darth Vader. Like the, the, the <laughs> like, it's one of those things that it's like you watch that film and you go, oh yeah, so he totally is his father. Like Obi Wan says he knows him. Yeah, yeah. But he's got that new like you There's said, he's got that playful it, vagueness. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I think what again with that just that final sequence and the way it's edited, and I think a lot of it is actually like bits that are reused in very clever ways and maybe they like flip the image oh it's placed so well so even with Moff Tarkin like counting it down basically yeah, when yeah. He, like, and it's it's that it's, let's be real it's John Williams score oh my god just, yeah that. well the soundtrack that, I mean talk about saving a film in post it's not even just her editing but the John Williams score and the the whole soundscape number the, one on the AFI's score list yeah wow no incredible well, even yeah, even today I was talking to Kirsty and she, you know, she's not a big movie person. She's never seen Star Wars, but she sure as hell knows the score to Star Wars. <laughs> Most everyone does. But even then, like, you think about the sounds of, like, the lightsabers and, like, R2-D2's beeping. The, the foley. And the yeah. foley. Like, all of those classic bits of iconography, which is part of the world building. Yeah. Every It's not only that everything has, like, a cool, unique design and, like, the lightsaber and the look even and the, the glow and the hue of it. Woo! Yeah, exactly. It's the sounds of the world that they're building as well. And... It's just like it. It's all part of the same bit of 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 world building. Even listening to, you know, last week when we announced next week in the show watching Star Wars, just that little teaser, which is I think the visual of that is just the Star Wars logo slowly coming into the visual. But the sound, it's just random sound effects from the movie, and it's so iconic. Yeah, it just the sound design is just second to none. It's it's one. It's just many of the groundbreaking elements in this film and to your point with the pacing earlier like oh no i was just gonna say it just really sits in the same category as something like dune from last year it's a technical masterpiece it's not a it's not probably a script writing masterpiece and i I look not to sell villainu show i think dune is quite like good script Mm. but it's technical aspects are where it shines through the most prominently yeah, no, well, it's, it, it's a technical masterpiece, this this really is. And and to your point, I still think the script... I mean, I think Lucas was facing his most... um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Like, chargeback or, or pushback, I guess, on his ideas and, he, and his thoughts. So if there, if there is any excellence to the pacing of the script and the way things are... I think, uh, you know, when I was re-watching it, I was surprised at how elegant some of the decisions are. I was like, okay, well, this scene has to happen where Alderaan explodes right before they fly into the the debris yeah. that's flying around, and it then paces really well. Yeah, well, even the things like my oh wow, like it's so well thought out, like how these things play out. There's not a missing beat, and then even when you know they're about to get back into the ship and the stormtroopers are all just standing there, and it's like, oh, that's right, they see they see Obi Wan and Darth Vader fighting. That's what causes them to leave. And that's what causes everyone to end up in the same room. Like, little blocking moments yeah. and beats. Like, I'm like... Paces really well. The script is... I, I think a lot of it is George getting a bit of pushback. Him having to write a few extra drafts and the editing saving. I think there's a little bit of that going on. But it's so well, like, crafted. Yeah. When you sit and think about all the beats and in which order they play in. And... So, like, character direction. Not a, not a big fan of it. 
The character direction. Yeah, well, you were saying, like, as he's a character director, like... Oh, right, right, right. Well, yeah, like, well, in terms of the performances, like, he yeah. doesn't know how to get a performance out of anyone. <laughs> and that's especially evident in the in the prequels. Yeah. But I think the combination of, like, his just imagination and the pure well-being that's going on with enough pushback from others... So and you're not then... a fan of anyone's performances in this film? No, uh, there's some great performances in here, but like I said, I think it's a case of you know, like, Mark Hamill turn around and be like, we need to change this line of dialogue. This is absolutely ridiculous. Like, there, again, there was more pushback. I don't think any of the actors in the prequels wanted to say anything. They were like, oh, it's George Lucas. He made Star Wars. I'm, I'm going to say whatever he writes me, and that's how you end up with the right. ridiculous lines you get in those films. Here, I think, you know, you got him and Harrison Ford and... Um, well, I have heard Harrison Ford particularly had a prominent hand in the three films sort of direct character direction of the scenes. Like, right. There were multiple behind-the-scenes things where Mark and Mark Hamill and um, Carrie Fisher both mm. were like, oh, well, he because he was a little bit older, obviously, he's 15, 16 years older, sure. sort of helped with being like, no, he was actually a lot of the person who would give that pushback, like, this is silly, this yeah. is silly. Like, obviously being typical grumpy him, but still <laughs> realistic him. And I'm yep. sure maybe there's probably... He might have done a bit of that in Indiana Jones, too. Well, I'm pretty sure Alec Guinness said the same thing. He said he would only do it if they reworked the dialogue. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he said that. So, I mean, I mean, just the combination of everyone working, or almost everyone working on it, you know, it's at the, it's just a weird space film at this point. That's all yeah. anyone's making in this scenario. And, and you have a bunch of, I guess, actors and producers and editors and, and all of these people who are like, we really want to make this, like, great. I think yeah, but, there's no expectation of what it's going to turn into. Well, yeah, and it's also one of those things where you've got a lot of people starting out, so no one's bigger than them, themselves, really. Right. And then those who are more senior, like Alec Guinness, who have had already a long, elongated um, yeah, career. Uh, career, it's it's kind of like fair for them to sort of interject and be like, yeah, look, I don't, I'm not happy with the dialogue. Very similar things happened with Peter Jackson on Lord of the Rings mm, with like Christopher okay. Lee and Ian McKellen particularly Christopher Lee, whatever, he wasn't, like, too happy with something, mm. he let him know about it. Because yeah. it's, it's a guy who's had a 45-year, 50-year career in cinema. Yeah, yeah. If he, he wants to turn around and go, yeah, look, I'm not a big fan of that line, or I'm doing that thing, or I think I should do this thing. You know, obviously, yeah. it's a final call always goes up to the director, but a good director listens sometimes. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you have to give credit there for, like, George Lucas doesn't go, oh, well, he, and to be honest, like you said, there were times where he really needed to be reined in. And if it's like, if you watch <laughs> the, to make a fan to menace. And when he watches that early screening and he goes, I think I went a bit too far. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's exactly the point though. Yeah. It's like, no one would let him go too far until he earned the status of George Luca created of creator of star Wars. Yeah. Until he reached that status, he gets the pushback and his wife's going to come and be like, let's bloody fix this film. Because it's not in shape right now, and you have a bunch of actors being like, "Let's work on some of this dialogue," because it's not in shape right now. I think that is that was very, very healthy for this film. Yeah, and I think the film would have been successful if not for that overly involved collaboration and people putting their foot down, be like, "We can make this better. We can make this better." Um, but at the end of the day, it's still George Lucas's vision, and again, the vehicles, the creatures, the droids, the world building, all of the the, the idea of the Force—that's him. That is all totally him. Yeah. And it's just, it's fantastic. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Let's see. I feel like there was something I was going to mention earlier. And now I can't remember. 
<laughs> Search your feelings, Jake. Why am I forgetting what I was going to say? I usually write all these things down. I mean, look, the best way to end this note on with Star Wars, obviously the the film on its own, 1977, the impact it had is just, it's monumental. And like I said earlier, I mean, a, a core part of it in terms of like, I guess the, the film literature, academic side of it is that this film has such great use of the hero's journey, um, Joseph yeah. Campbell and all that. And I think that's what we heard endlessly at, at you know, when we were studying film, for example. But I think the reason it really did blow up the way it is, like I said, like we were both saying, is the world building is just so inviting. Yeah. And invites imagination. And, and as restrained as it is, you're right, there's actually, there's very few locations. The pacing ultimately starts with the two droids. And, you know, we don't meet Luke until like, what, 15, 20 minutes into the film. Yeah. And it, it's part of that audience discovery. We as an audience are discovering... On, on this journey, this world of like, okay, well, here's, we're, we're thrown in the middle, almost like in media res. The opening scene is like this big action scene and we're, we're meeting the rebels and the empire and the villains and the heroes. And then we slow down. Then we take a breath. and like, okay, well, let's go on this small little journey with these droids. No, oh, he's a farm boy and he knows of this guy, this old guy who's a, you know, a myth or legend. Maybe he's a Jedi master. Like the, the actual progression and the pacing, I mean, we've talked about the pacing already. It really is just wonderful. And I think, Nowadays, this is such an expectation that people know what Star Wars is and has seen all the movies, has watched all the shows, has played all the games, has read all the books. Um, it doesn't feel as inviting anymore, and I think that's a bit of a shame. Um, I think anyone could just sit down and watch this Star Wars film and just be absolutely mm. enamored and blown away by it. Um, I don't know if that could happen the way it does anymore, you know, with this Obi-Wan show. I mean, we're watching an Obi-Wan show. You know, the quote-unquote prequel to this film and we're like but where's the hook it's all there the locations the costumes the creatures the 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 spirituality of the force it's all there but where's the hook yeah and i i think that's something that we're slowly starting to lose with the star wars property ended on a bit of a down note maybe <laughs> for, for jakey to talk i don't know if you would agree at all with that but yeah well like i said it's that unnecessary becoming more exponentially unnecessary yes. viewing and yeah. i think it's not lost forever i think allowing creatives like john favreau and dave filoni to take over the creative leads wholeheartedly has actually given it life and given it an imagination and i do think that i think the intellectual prop when we've explored uh, intricacies of the timeline a little bit more detail I think that's done a lot of benefits I thought the animated shows were the best piece of Star Wars stereo- uh, storytelling mm. since these original films and I can stand by that and actively justify it but the problem is those animated film uh, those animated shows were targeted firstly at kids and by the time that they got to a more mature audience no one mm. mature was willing to jump on board so it's tough to, like you said, only really diehard people really watch those. So is that uh, positive? Not really, because you want to be able to to talk about this depth and such with the widest ranging audience. Mm. I think Star Wars hit the same era as MCU. I think the reason why we liked this film or this original trilogy so much, mm. why it was ironclad into film, was it was exploring... A world we had never explored before it's why mm. i'm so excited for the second june film 
Right. Because I don't know anything about Dune. So that first film was amazing for mm. me because I was exploring this scientific fiction world yeah. that I had never heard about or wanted to explore. And it's it's why, um, you know, I look forward to that sequel film a lot. But we need more like that, less mm. of these properties. I don't need to see... I have got these films I can hold on to and yeah. really enjoy. Yeah. I don't need more from Star Wars. I need more from the new, original, and free-flowing ideas of the George Lucas of the 21st century. Yeah. No, I think that's a really powerful way to, to put it. <laughs> Star Wars, the original, mm. is not available in wide release in its most original format. <laughs> no, it isn't. its most up-to-date version is available on Disney+. Plus. But, Zeke, we haven't even done our highlight scenes yet. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. What was your highlight scene, Zeke? Um, <laughs> probably the final battle. Just like the final, oh, the whole sequence. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's just so good. Yeah. I love the pacing. I love the way the score um, just builds. Yeah. Um, John Williams going beast mode on that. I would kill to watch that live. <laughs> watch this movie with a live orchestra. Oh, yeah. Like, do your Amadeus oh, viewing. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Surely this like, Wasso's doing some kind there, of symphony. I'm sure they're doing something like that. My highlight scene... Just because this film's so excellent. Let's let's go with the big one because this is the despecialized edition that we did watch. Han shot first. We all know that. Yeah. And he shot Greedo and Greedo's dead. And that's the end of that story. You indeed correct. We can watch a version of this film on Disney Plus. But uh find the despecialized edition because it's just it just it puts you right back. Yeah. We gotta we gotta have our culture and our history untainted by the very man. You saw. You were meant to destroy the Sith, not join them. Speaking of Rob which, movie. Jake, what's new to <laughs> cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Uh yeah, it's a bit of a beefy week. Little bit, a little bit of sprinkling here and there all around, Zeke. So on Netflix, you got the uh, Interceptor, or I think it's just called Interceptor, which is an army captain used her years of tactical training and military expertise to survive the coordinated attack on the missile interceptor station she's in command of. On Stan, you've got films like Joker, Buried. It's a great Ryan Reynolds film. Uh, Felma, Paranormal Activity, 13 Assassins, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. wonder if there's a Johnny Depp situation going on there. Mm. <laughs> there's a statement being made there. Um, they're probably going to rule on that in the uh, this week. Uh, what they Really? Yeah, the jury being... I think they've got given everything they need on... For us, I think it was Friday night is when, the, when their case is rested and now the jury can go and make their decisions so that should be this week <laughs> you can find that on youtube on all the legal yes. live stream channels <laughs> on disney plus you have hollywood stargirl which sees susan stargirl caraway journey out of mika and into the world of music dreams and possibilities exhorting mm, terms on prime zeke you're excited for this the season three premiere of the boys on the 3rd of June, so keen. this Friday. So keen. Very excited. Is this? Do they drop the whole season, or is it? Is it a weekly release? I don't know. This is the first time I've ever watched the, oh, that. Oh, okay. What's Prime's way? I think they just dropped the whole season. Okay. Interesting. I don't know if Prime does weekly releases. I know. See, see, with Prime... Well, I guess, yeah, it's a Prime exclusive, isn't it? Yeah, Binge does weekly. Disney Plus does weekly. Netflix does all at once. Yes. Um, yeah, Strange Things does a whole half out. Um, Stan, I think Stan's different because Stan's usually oh no, that's not true I think Stan do weekly so we'll find out I'll give you an answer next week yeah exactly because I will guarantee whether you've it. seen one episode or all of them yeah. <laughs> also coming to Prime this week you got The Favourite we love that film Catch Me If You Can The Place Beyond the Pines and many more 
which is exciting. Coming to binge this week, you got Chef. That's a great film. Speaking great. of John Favreau. Low key. There great you go. film. Low key. Very great film. You got Richie Rich, Tin Cup, Terminator Genesis, and 1982's Annie. And coming to cinemas, you've got Charlie XCX Alone Together, which sees the pop star in quarantine embark on a whirlwind journey, making an album in 40 days that tests her creative and emotional limits while uniting global community of the LGBTQ plus fans. This sounds a little Bo Burnham Inside-esque. The whole, like, trapped in a room, but trying to be untrapped creatively. Yeah. Interesting. Intriguing. Yeah. So that's, that's actually playing cinemas. Which I was a little surprised oh, okay. by. Um, also coming to cinemas, you have Little Tornadoes, which is set in Australia in 1971. Sees a newly single father struggle to weather the turbulence of the change as a new immigrant endeavours to find her place in a foreign land. Sounds very interesting. Mothering Sunday sees a maid living in post-World War One England as she secretly plans to meet with the man she loves before he marries another woman. Stars Odysseus Young, who was in Shirley. Mm-hmm. We thought very highly of Shirley a while back on the podcast. And, of course, you've got Olivia Coleman as well, so she's always a win. Always. So there you go. That could be one to check out. And finally, if you're planning a camp outside Luna Leaderville, you can have a preview screening of Alex Garland's new film, Men, this Sunday the 5th. Hearing very mixed things about this. Apparently, he's very on the nose about men being bad. Okay. Yeah. Jesse Buckley's in it, though. So that's always a win as well. And finally, you've got the German Film Festival, which sees films such as The the Forger, The Last Execution, The Black Square, Risk and Side Effects, and a Stasi Comedy. Uh, all those are more starting at the German Film Festival. I think this Thursday. And there it goes go. on for a lot of June as well. So yeah, interesting week. A lot happening, Zeke. Yeah, a lot's happened in the last week and a lot happening in the week coming up. Mm. We didn't even talk about Ray Liotta dying. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That hit me. I saw that because I... I'm in a lot of Martin Scorsese meme groups. So I see Ray Liotta come up a lot. But to actually see it come up and say that he passed away, I was yeah. like, whoa. And just found out Ronnie Hawkins, the hawk Ronnie Hawkins, who oh, mentored the band, passed away at 87. Wow. This week? Yes. Just today. <laughs> today. Oh, my God. So This sucks. Yeah. But we did do the last waltz on the show about a month ago. That's true. So that is true. That was uh, That was pretty cool to talk about and see him i was literally listening to the last waltz before coming oh that's very good i do want to give a shout out he i think he died a year or two i think i think we actually did talk about it when he did pass away but i went to a bit of a jazz thing at whopper last night with a lot of people volunteer and do jazz um but when i pull up quickly one of the songs that they actually play which has been stuck in my head all day is the soundtrack from cinema paradiso so of course it was ernie morricone i believe that's the name of the Italian composer, who of course did you know mm. the Good, the Bad, the Ugly, and a bunch of Tarantino films, and that he passed away like a year or two ago. And we we did talk about it when it happened, but I wanted to give him a shout out because that that score for Cinema Paradiso was just so beautiful. Yeah, and yeah, it was like a it was sort of like a I don't want to say amateur jazz. It was like a bunch of people just volunteered to play jazz or to play the saxophone in particular. There but they played that song and it sounded wonderful. So Now, rest in peace, Ray, Ray Liotta. Yes. We love Goodfellas. We do. We should do it on the podcast. Yes. Very soon. We're not doing that next week, though, Jake. No, we're moving we're into the 1960s and that countdown through the decades. Retrospective had two big heavyweights going up against each other, Jake. Yeah. In terms of films that represent a decade, these yeah. two definitely, they definitely do it. Who won and what are we watching? So, I'll start with what? Lost. We're not doing this film. We're not doing Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Valiant effort. 
Of course, we talked about George Roy Hill earlier in the show. We did, I think in our first count over the decades, we did another one of his films. The Sting. The Sting, which won quite a lot of more Oscars than, than Butch Cassidy did. Did Butch Cassidy, that did pretty well though, like Academy yeah. Award. Yeah. yeah I'd imagine so. Two. Okay. Very nice. But no, it, it, we're, we're going just one year earlier in time. Talk about a film from 1968 by Franklin J. Scaffner. Interesting. I don't think many people talk about the director of this film, though. No. They stick with the franchise. Next week in the show, Zeke, we're watching Planet of the Apes. Discover Planet of the Apes. civilization where humans run wild in the jungles and the superior beings are apes George Taylor, played by Charlton Heston, and his spaceship crash lands on an unknown planet. He discovers, to his bewilderment, that the planet is ruled by advanced apes who cage and enslave the primitive human inhabitants. Now, well. first go. That is a tongue twister. Now that say that fast, bewilderment, inhabitants, primitive. Yes. I mean, those are all the key elements of <laughs> Planet of the Apes, right there. <laughs> See, what's your history of Planet of the Apes? Um. Watched it once, really enjoyed it. Um, this was the, I think, the film my mum got dragged to the most by her mother. Whoa. Okay. To the drive-in. I think she went and saw this film like 10 or 11 times because <laughs> my mum was, obs- uh, sorry, my nan was obsessed with Charlton Heston. Yeah, wow. Uh, I'm glad I mentioned his name then. Yeah, Charlton, he's, would this be his most famous role? A Touch of Evil's got to be up there, right? Like yeah, a touch I guess of evil. so. Yeah. No, quite a, a few. There's an argument. He's a bit of a gun nut, apparently. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. He's in um. Oh, what's the? A bit racist too, I think. Yeah. Well, not, <laughs> he, not he, he wasn't a very politically correct person. I feel like I haven't seen this film in quite a few years. I feel like this film's going to be a little racy. <laughs> Planet of the Apes. We shall see how we go. I know. But what, what, what's he's in um? How am I thinking the documentary? The name of it. The gun. The gun one. From, oh, Bowling from, for Columbine. Bowling for Columbine, yeah. Charlton Heston's in that, isn't he? Yeah. He gets chastised at the end, but yeah. Um, yeah, no, I I've, I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen this Planet of the film. I've seen virtually all of them. I don't think I saw the Mark Wahlberg one, but um, I love this franchise so much. I love the five films that originated. I obviously love the new trilogy they did in the last, you know, the 10, 2010s, if you will. Um, I love Planet of the Apes. This is going to be really fun to talk about. 
No worries. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sancho podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with The Planet of the Apes.